Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church, and I'm excited to be with you here this morning. Uh, summer's rolling to a close, uh, sadly, so maybe parents, you're excited about that. You get to put your kids back into school. Um, others of you, youth maybe, or, or college students, you're like, oh my gosh, it's a couple weeks ahead. So I hope you're ready for it. Um, I'm going to read for us a passage that we're going to get to at the end of the message, but I think it's good to kind of set the tone of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you have a Bible, flip to John chapter 4. It's the story of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Most of you are probably familiar with it. I'm going to read a short passage of it for us, and then we will launch in and we'll look more detailed at the story later on. John chapter 4. Starting in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is also called Christ. When, he, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world." Well, I don't know what you've been doing this summer, uh, but I've made it my personal ambition to watch as much of the Olympics as I can. And, uh, I, and I've been steadily impressed with, with what's going on. Uh, the most impressive for me, is similar to last year, uh, is that of the performance of Michael Phelps. Um, and regardless of what you think about him, you, you've got to say that, that his accomplishments are, are unprecedented. I mean, he has been able to, to succeed in his events beyond anyone else who's ever done what he does. And what's very interesting is that uh, as I've been watching interviews of him, he, he sits down and, and they're asking him the same questions. You know, what do you think about what you're doing? What do you think about um, your legacy that you're leaving? And what, what, what are you going to do next? And, and the way he answers it is very interesting. What, what he says is, is this, um, I've achieved everything that I wanted to achieve. And that, that struck me. At the end of his swimming career, which is funny, he's talking about retirement at 27, which is hilarious. Uh, but, but as he's talking, he's saying, as I've reached the end of my career, here's what I can say. I can say I've accomplished everything that I want to do. And he's talking about his retirement. He's like, maybe I'm going to take up golf and go around. And I'm like, bro, you're going to have to figure out something else because for the next five or six decades, uh, golf won't be fully satisfying. You're going to have to figure out something else. But, but it, it led me to think, when I come to the end of my time, will I have said I've completed, 
I've had achieved everything I set out to do. What is success for me? I think it's important, an important question for all of us. What is success for you in your life? And I think you should bridge that quickly to what is success in the Christian life? What does it mean to be successful in the life that God has given to you? And there's three simple phrases that I would give to you to define what success is in the Christian life. The first one is this, intimacy with God. The goal of the Christian life is intimacy with God. Jesus said, the goal of the Christian life, this is eternal life, that you would know God and the son who he sent, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second thing is this, Christ-like character, that you would look more like Jesus as you live your life, that, that you would not grow to be more bitter and angry, but you would grow and look more like Christ as you get older. And lastly, this, faithfulness. Success in the Christian life is these three things, intimacy with God, Christ-like character formed within you, and faithfulness to follow him despite the circumstances. The question is, how do I get there? How do I achieve success in the Christian life? What does it look like? I love this quote from, from one author, Jackson Brown. He says this, talent without discipline is like an octopus on roller skates. There's plenty of movement, but you never know where it's going to be forward, backwards, or sideways. You never really know what's going. And I would say this, the key component to success in the Christian life, as well as any endeavor, is discipline. Discipline in your life. And in the Christian life, um, there's a, a trajectory that your discipline needs to go towards, and that is this, spiritual disciplines. And so this summer, we've been talking about spiritual disciplines, how to, how to put things within your life to to help you grow in your relationship with God so that you can indeed be successful in your Christian life. But what's interesting uh, about spiritual disciplines in particular is that they don't guarantee success. Um, LeBron James uh, this past year was very successful at Miami. But there's a lot of questions about, about what would happen when he left Cleveland and went to Miami. Like, would he succeed? Would he achieve all that he wanted to? And what came to be known quickly is this. The move didn't guarantee success, but he was putting himself in an environment where he could be successful, when he could win the championship. For those of you who like planting gardens and such, uh, putting flowers in that garden, fertilizing it, watering it, doesn't guarantee that those plants will grow and thrive. Um, if you want evidence, just come to my house later on. And, but you're creating an environment for it to grow. Um, If you have a wife, a spouse, bringing her flowers, taking her to dinner, writing her poetry, looking her longingly in the eyes, saying, I love you, doesn't guarantee intimacy or growth, but you are creating an environment for intimacy to grow. Spiritual disciplines are this, creating environments for your heart's affections to be stirred toward God and to grow in your relationship with him. Today we're going to look at an interesting spiritual discipline, and it's probably the most broad, and that is worship. And the question is, what is worship? Do we sit in rows? Do we sing songs? Is it this moment? Is it only this moment? What is worship? Well, I'd give you a definition from uh, Webster's Dictionary. It says this, Worship is this, reverence offered to a divine being or supernatural power, Um, It's a form of religious practice with its creed and ritual. 
It's extravagant respect or admiration or devotion to an object of esteem. So what is worship? Well, in the book Celebration of Discipline, William Temple gives a different definition. He says this, Worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. So worship is, is, in that definition, it consumes all of us. It's the mind, it's the heart, it's the will, it's the emotion. Worship is, is dedicating oneself to the purposes of God, and it requires all of you. My simpler definition is this. It's the right response to the revelation of who God is. It includes activities of the mind, the heart, the body, and these things bring honor to God and satisfaction to us. Okay, practically, Kevin, like what what does that even mean? What does that even look like? Well, in scripture, we've got several examples and and I'm just gonna run you through a couple passages that show us what worship looked like to ancient peoples. Because as a Christian, we find ourselves in a long line of worshipers. So what has it looked like historically? What is it? Well, it's simply composed of people singing and praising is one avenue of it. Uh, Psalm 717 says this, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord. So it includes individuals gathering together. It includes them praising God for who he is and it's song. So we sing songs, we sing new songs, we sing old songs, we sing to God. Psalm 2113 says this, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So it includes individuals gathering together, singing and praising God for who he is and what he's doing. It says specifically for your power, the things that you're doing. It also includes this, teaching, physical engagement, and emotional engagement. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart, to God. See, it includes teaching. So part of our worship experience includes us giving you information. It includes a person standing and telling you, teaching you about God. That's the process of the early church. If you look in Acts chapter 2, what is the first thing that the church did? 3,000 people came to faith in a moment, and the first thing they did was to dedicate themselves to the apostles' teaching. So teaching is a huge part of that, but it also includes singing and encouragement. So they sing old, song, old songs, it's psalms, it's hymns, it's spiritual songs. It includes new songs. Um, often in the psalms and in, at the end of Revelation, it says this, you will be singing new songs. So we sing both new songs and old songs in praise to God. But what's even more interesting is that it includes an emotional engagement. Revelation seven eleven says this, and all the angels were standing around the throne And the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the Lord and worshiped God. The context of this verse is that Jesus is sitting on the throne and he is about to open up the scrolls. And as they see Jesus doing this, they praise him and they fall on their faces before him. You know, worship includes physical and emotional interaction. Uh, and, and so oftentimes in the Psalms, it'll say, we kneel before God. We raise our hands before God. We just sang that, the stand. I raise my hands with, with arms high and heart abandoned. And, and some of you are like, I don't raise my hands. Well, 
In scripture, it says you raise your hands in honor of God. It calls us to do that. It includes kneeling. And it includes falling on our faces and worship before God. So we're going to do that later on. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But it includes a physical interaction with God. But also, it's emotional. You see, I think we can make too much of emotions, but we could also make too little of it. Why would you fall on your face before God? It's not like Jesus is standing there and he's like, I'm about to open the scrolls, people, get down. And they're like, okay, Jesus likes it when we're low. You know, like they're seeing the honor of Jesus and the natural response is to fall on their face. It is a physical engagement. It is an emotional engagement. It includes teaching, but also it includes giving, both financial and physical. David, when he was um, about to worship God, he is buying a piece of land from an individual and the individual says, hey, you don't need to give me any money. Just, just take the land. And David responds in this way. He says, however, the king said to Aranah, no, I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. It included in worship is the aspect of giving. We give financially. But we also give physically. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a holy, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So worship includes all of these different things. I don't know if I got the list up there. But the reality is worship includes our entire being. It's, it's singing songs to God. It's, it's learning about God. It's, it's giving ourselves and our money to God for his work and his purposes. It includes all of us in, as an act of worship to God. The next question that I would answer is, okay, wh- why do we worship? Like, what's the point? Does God have some sort of inadequacy that he's filling by us worshiping? Well, the first reality is this, that God commands us to worship. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the instructions given to the nation of Israel is, look, you will worship me and you'll have no other gods before me. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, um, you remember he was tempted by Satan. He was given lots of options and it culminated in the final option of, hey, I will give you everything on earth if you just do one thing. If you bow down and worship me. And Jesus' response, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God alone. And the New, the New Testament authors, they go on to say that we are called to worship. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day draw near. We are called to worship. God commands us. We're called to it. We kind of see what it looks like, but, but there's a last aspect of worship that I want to spend the rest of our time on because I feel like this brings it all back into focus. The real question is this, why should we? What is the point of worship? Why is this a spiritual discipline that's important to me to engage in? Why should I? Lastly, the reality is this. We are created for it. You were made to be a worshiper. 
And the truth is, you worship something. We all do. Every one of us worships something. At the beginning of creation, God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a perfect environment, an environment for life not just to survive, but to thrive. He looked at their needs, he looked at what they were lacking, and he moved to meet those needs. He created a perfect environment for them. And the first issue that came up is that Eve said, I think I can do this on my own. And so she ventured that direction to meet her own needs in her own way. And that brought separation between humanity and God for the rest of creation, for, for our moments today. We are suffering the collateral damage of that separation. And what's interesting is that Paul points out in Romans, when that break happened, it wasn't just that, that you now have the option either to worship God or to live life your own way. What Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, is that if you don't have God as your center object of worship, if you don't pursue him as, your, as the central affection and direction of your life, if you don't worship him, what will happen is you will worship something else. Romans chapter 1, verse 23 says this, And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men, of birds, of four-footed animals, of crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to their lusts, to the impurity of their hearts, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It says, when God isn't your object of worship, you will choose something else to worship. And it will be some created image. It will be something that you make or something that you do. It says they created either an image of man or an image of some creature to worship. And we can look at that now as Americans and uh, as people that are, you know, educated um, and say, that's just dumb. Um, I wouldn't ever do that. But what's interesting is you continue to trace the line of scripture. You get to the book of 1 John. And 1 John is talking about the glory of God and what it looks like to engage and abide in Christ. And at the end of the book, he has this tagline that just seems out of place. He says, little children, guard yourself from idols. And as I'm reading that, or as an individual reads that, you just, how does this fit in? And the truth that God wants to lay out is, look, if you don't worship God, you will worship something else. And when you worship something else, that thing won't just, it's not just a choice. It's something that will destroy you. Tim Keller has a book called um, Counterfeit Gods. And in the book, he has this quote. He says this, an idol is whatever you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is this, worship. See, when God says to us, worship him alone, what he's saying is this, if you don't do that, you'll worship something else. Because I created you that way. I created you to worship. And in John chapter four, what we see is a woman who is worshiping. And we're going to watch Jesus in this moment lead this woman from a process of worshiping something else on this line to worship him alone and the results that it produces within her. If you have your Bibles, back to John chapter 4. It says, Jesus got tired. 
And so he stopped at this well. And in verse 7, it says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews and Samaritans have no dealings. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Her response is, uh, Okay, you don't have a, uh, any implement to draw water. What are you talking about, Jesus? And then he responds with this, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But that water I give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, what Jesus does in this moment is he identifies the longings within all of us. Particularly the longings within this woman. And the truth is, all of us have three deep longings. We have physical longings, we have emotional longings, and we have spiritual longings. Um, In this passage, it kind of defines them as as thirsts. And she doesn't quite get it. This woman just doesn't understand where Jesus is going with this. And and so she says, okay, uh, you, you have nothing to draw water with. What are you talking about? And he's saying, look, you have a deep longing within you. And it's both physical, emotional, and spiritual. And here's the issue. You are looking to meet that longing. See, we all have physical thirsts. We have the thirst for uh, safety, for security, for food, for sleep, for water. Uh, We have physical longings. But what's interesting is both each one of these longings, sometimes meeting them becomes spiritual endeavors. Um, I have friends of mine that have worked for Starbucks. And uh, what's funny about them is that before they start working for Starbucks, they're normal people. Um, (laughs) And then they go and they enter into this entirely new environment. Um, They start learning about the process of of taking a bean from a normal plant and roasting it and all the process that's within that. And then the process of of brewing it and how you should brew it. And and then in the process of of drinking it, like what should result. And and suddenly like this this whole thing of I like coffee to drink because it's satisfying to me. takes on this whole new endeavor as they're like, don't go there because they don't brew their coffee right and they don't do this. And, and so all of a sudden it becomes this like competitive weird thing. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who's a sommelier, right? If you're not familiar with that, it's someone who does wine tastings. They, uh, they get money to, to provide the perfect wine for your meal. And so they're typically at more expensive restaurants. And so as you order your steak or fish, he'll come and tell you the perfect wine to balance off that, that rings off your palate and, and brings this whole environment. And, and so suddenly like this food becomes something a lot more. We have um, emotional longings. And really the emotional longings play themselves out in this way for intimacy and impact. You want to either be with somebody or you want to be somebody. Every one of us has these longings. I just watched the movie Batman, the the most recent one. Hope you've seen it. Um, If not, whatever. Uh, I'm going to ruin it for you. Um, You're... What happens in this movie is that you see this man who's a... who comes to be a hero, right? But what's so interesting in every one of these films, even the action adventures, they have to tie in impact with intimacy. And so there's this love story uh, before his girlfriend died. And in this one, it was Catwoman, right? I ruined it. And, and, and so you see that this intimacy becomes crucial to him. 
And you see the impact. And so why do I want to go see the movie? Because he blows up stuff and he beats people up. And so that gets the guys. Um, ladies, you're probably more into the intimacy. What, how are these people relating to one another? And we continue to go to those movies that fuel these same two deep emotional longings within us. And, and the truth is, physical longings, emotional longings, they all bring out of them spiritual significance. Because we long not just to, to be with somebody, not just to have our physical needs met. We desire transcendence. We desire to live for something bigger than we are, to, to be a part of something bigger than each one of us. We, we desire not just to have food, but for it to be an experience. Not just to have love, but it to be remarkable. They save you, they rescue you, and you, you conquer something. Like, like We desire it to go well beyond just the physical and emotional needs. We want it to go far beyond to meet the deep needs that are in within each one of you. And sin is taking these deep, real, good, God-given longings and satisfying them in any other way than God. The longings aren't evil. But the problem is we take these legitimate, good longings and we satisfy them in illegitimate ways. And that's the journey that Jesus takes this woman on. He goes to her next and he says to her, She says, how can I get this water? And his response is, hey, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you've said truly. You know what Jesus does next? And, and it can seem harsh. I don't, if you read that, you can be like, well, Jesus, you just totally overstepped a boundary in your 10-minute conversation with this woman. That's, that was kind of a jerk face move. And, but, but he does it in a loving way. You see, what he's trying to do within her is identify the deep thing that is pulling her away from really worshiping God. He's trying to identify the idol of her heart. And the truth is, every one of us has idols, It could be safety. Israel, um, back in the Old Testament, it says this of them. That God said to them, just, I will protect you. I will provide for you. But in Isaiah, it says that they left God and they went to Egypt because Egypt had the powerful military and they can long for protection from them. It could be beauty. In the ancient times, they went to the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. And we can say, like, those silly old people, they, they went to those places. But, but we, although we may not go to that temple, we may still worship there. Tim Keller, in his book, as he continues, um, he says this, Contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols, has its own priesthood, its own totems and rituals, each one its own shrines, whether office towers or spas or gyms or studios or stadiums where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and to ward off disaster. What is it, God? It's whatever you're going to to meet the deep longing of your heart. And so your God may be beauty. And you go to the gym and you work out for hours and hours so that you can receive the benefits from that God. 
You can watch um, celebrities as their beauty fades, their faces turn into grotesques as they get surgery after surgery after surgery, bowing before this God. What is a God? It's whatever you willingly make sacrifices to, to bring satisfaction to your souls. And the sad reality in this, and the reason this is an issue, the reason God cares about your idols is because they will destroy you. Pulitzer Prize winner, um, Ernest Becker said this, if people are going to deny God, they've got to look for something else to satisfy the need. And his answer is this, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for this book that he wrote um, called The Denial of Death. And his solution that he thought people would run to is this apocalyptic romance. He says this, man still needed to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? One of the first things that occurred to him, um, as Otto Rank saw, is, was the romantic solution. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to meet and fulfill this one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused on the individual. In one word, the love object is God. What is it that we want when we elevate this partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. Ben Stewart kind of preached a message um, called idolatry or idols. And, uh, and he kind of pulled this quote out and then he kind of traces the line and says, look, hey, Disney has tapped into this, um, if you don't realize this. Um, ladies, uh, w- what do you see within Disney? You see Tangled and you see a woman, uh, a girl who is locked into a tower. And what does she need? I need a man to come save me. You see this in Snow White. Um, I got all these little dudes around me and they're great, but I need a big dude to come get me. Guys, we have these same things. Beauty and the Beast, Princess and the Frog. What are they telling you? You are ugly. (laughs) Until some beauty walks in and tells you you're okay. How many marriages do we have to watch fall apart before we realize romance isn't the solution? They will not fill your deepest needs. For some of us, it's, more, it's in the success realm, and it could be chasing it either through money or, or popularity. Pop legend Madonna says this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Is it success in your arena? I mean, is is it that stage that you want? Is it that CEO position of your company? Here's what will happen. I promise you, if that's your ultimate, if that's your object of worship, if that's what consumes your mind, your moments, and your money, if that's your direction, what will happen is you'll get that moment and you'll find that it's empty. Or you'll spend the, your entire life chasing it and it will never provide what you want. And so God is saying, hey, don't chase the idols of your heart. Isn't being vindictive, he isn't being evil. He's saying, I know how your heart works 
and I know what brings satisfaction to your souls. And if you read in the scripture, often they'll say God is, is jealous for his people. He's jealous for them to turn back to him and not worship something else. And, and to some of us, that can sound vindictive. Like, like God's, um, like C.S. Lewis says it this way. He sounds like an old woman looking for compliments. Like, like what, is he, what, what is he doing? But he's jealous for your joy. I have a two-year-old daughter. And I love my little two-year-old daughter. Her name's Peyton Noel, and she's a beautiful little thing. And she's probably on like the ninth percentile in the growth chart, so she's always going to be teeny. And I don't care, because I love her. But not everyone has access to her. She doesn't get into anyone's car. She doesn't get anyone to watch her or care for her. And is that vindictive? Is that because I'm evil? No, because I'm jealous for her good. And I'm going to tell her not to go to certain areas. Why? Not because I'm evil, but because I love her and I want the best for her. God says, look, the desire of your heart is fully satisfied in me. And that's why Jesus presents himself to her. He says, look, if you drink something else, it will leave you thirsty. But if you come to me, you will never thirst again. And so what does God want us to do? He says, lastly, he wants us to turn to him. See that he is the one that can fully satisfy our needs. And that is exactly what this woman does. She turns to him and she says, hey, when Messiah comes, he's gonna set everything right. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm that guy, big secret, I'm him. And she goes, oh my gosh. And you know what she does next? She runs and tells people. You see, what happens? What does true worship look like? It's experience, it's enjoyment, and the result is praise. You see, what she needed was to experience what is it that God is truly like. And that's why in the, in the Psalms and in the New Testament, it'll say this. Think about who God is. Remember what he has done. See what he's doing in the world. Experience him. And when you experience who God is, you enjoy him. Like you see that he is meeting your needs. Like, like he is the direction of your heart and soul and, and he is meeting your deepest desires and needs and you enjoy him. And the result, the natural result is to praise. When you see that God is who he is and he is fully enjoyed, you will result in praise. C.S. Lewis uh, in his reflections on the Psalms was, was wrestling with this. He's like, I, I don't understand why God would, would command us to praise. Like, why is this part of it? And he then describes it in this way. He says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. So you're watching the Olympics and I promise you, you're not keeping that bottled up. You're going and telling someone. You go see a movie and you, that, you don't like keep that bottled up. You go tell someone else, like you've got to see that movie. That was incredible. You hear a great song. The natural result is to go tell someone. You see someone beautiful. Uh, you go tell someone like she's hot. Or if you're really bold, you go to go tell her, you know, her that she's hot. And, and, and nat, the praise is the natural result when you experience something incredible and worship True worship, both in spirit and truth, is this. You know who God is because you've experienced him. 
you enjoy him because he is the satisfaction of life and you praise him. You sing to him, you, you tell him of his honor, you spend time thinking about him, you praise him. And so what do we do with this? Well, for some of us, we gotta identify the idols of our heart. What are you chasing that is holding the spot of God within you? And secondly, this, you create environments to stir your affection for praise. So you come to this moment and you get teaching and learning about who God is and what he's doing in the world. You do it devotionally. You read your Bible and you read um, the Bible itself. You read work for, um, through biographies and you stir your heart's affections for him. And then you result in praise for who he is and what he's doing with both your mind, your heart, and your will. That's how we worship God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I pray that we could truly be people that worship in spirit and in truth, that we would know you for who you are. And Father, we would bring honor to you. And Father, that we would know for facts and for truth that you are the satisfaction of our souls. And so Lord, I pray that we would turn to you from all of our idols. In your name we pray, amen. Have a great morning.